you fucking die, I said to her. No, I said, you, you fucking die to her. Huh? What? No, no, no. No, I was talking to Kim. I, I said, you fucking die. No. Uh, no, we were just goofing around. No, no, it didn't have anything to do with anything. I said, she said, she said, don't touch, anybody touches my stuff. And I said, you fucking die like that. I was finishing her part for her. Know what I mean? Welcome to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. Hey, Joe. Good afternoon. Okay, so I got to tell you, Joe, uh, before we dive into the meat and taters of this particular episode, uh, and there is a lot of both of those things on this particular plate, I need to just tell you and just... Uh, become clean about this. I just turned fifty years old. Mm-hmm. Not me, not yet. Yeah, not, not me. <laughs> not me. Yeah, yeah I'm still you, in my forties. You soon, you soon, bro. You're gonna be. It seems that pretty clip. far away. It's. I gotta tell you, I have a, still have two months. So yeah, that it, seems... it, the honest truth, and I haven't talked to you about this. I don't think really is that. Um, uh, it wound up being, yeah, there's definitely, it's been a great week, the whole week, but uh, definitely reflective. Mm-hmm. It definitely feels like I'm going to die any second. <laughs> oh, you just feel like that way just now? <laughs> oh, sweet. Are I you feel a lot like better. Are you saying that gets worse? <laughs> I've been doing that pretty much since I was like 16. Yeah, yeah. But it it, it really, you know, I'm, I'm generally a very congenial birthday dude kind of mm-hmm. guy. But uh, but this one was just like whoa, like saucer eye emoji guy. Yeah, you know that guy. Uh-huh. I'm kind of an anti-holiday. I'd rather not do any of it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. You strike me that way. Too. I wish everybody would just forget. Even your call to me felt reluctant. <laughs> I don't mind that so much. I I really don't like being center of it when it's like my. Yeah, day. yeah. I understand that. Um, okay, enough of that crap. I don't want to talk about uh, the fact that I'm definitely dying any second. Uh, hey, you know what? You know what Zimmerman says. What? He who isn't busy being born, get busy dying. That's right. Yeah, man. I don't think he says get busy dying. Uh, I thought he was urging. <laughs> he was. I thought he was I hastening. Is, I think it's is busy. Dying. Is busy dying. Yeah. Uh, all right, back to business, guys. All right, everyone. You all need to know just how seriously we take this shit. Discography is heavily researched, and every release is listened to with fresh ears. And we're not just covering what you think we might be covering, uh, what every Johnny Come Lately covers, the albums. No, we do a searingly honest and thorough analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, solo work, bootlegs, and notable appearances on other records. And then every release is given a rating between zero and five. Never less than zero. Never more than five. Always right in there. Right in that sweet spot. Now I feel like that is going to be violated just because you mentioned it. Yeah, you're going to bust out a five and a half. That's going to... Doing that in such a short period of time, that's going to allow us to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc, a thing of beauty. In today's episode of Discography, we'll be turning the spray cans on the Pixies. Mmm... Primal, violent, snarling, whip-cracking, Damon-id. 
turned indie rock cash register. Ka-ching, ka-ching. You, you know them and love them, probably. Yes. And if you don't, uh, that's what this episode is for, I guess. So you and I both were the perfect age for this band. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about being 50, because it places us in just that sphere of influence to where you really want to be listening to what we have to say about these guys. Well, it's interesting. You should mention being uh, ostensibly the right age for this band, because uh, apparently you were the right age. But when I was 16, 17, 18, when these records were coming out, I was really kind of more concerned with like, Enough is enough. What's the next Queensryche record going to be right, like? Right, right. Same, same deal. So um, I didn't really uh, get into them until kind of later, like when I was in college, um, when I you know started listening to uh, actual good music. I grew up kind of in a, a, a wasteland of of culture in South Florida. There was no like real university presence around, and there were maybe like a couple of kids. You know who was into the Pixies was our friend Andy, our mutual yeah, friend. Yeah, Andy. yeah, yeah. Andy Always was like my uh, still still one of my best friends, and um, is uh, was the kid with good taste at school who turned me on. We'll to a refer. Lot of we'll just refer to him as Andy, and then we'll uh, ring him up and ask him if uh, full disclosure on name is okay with him, and then fill in the blanks later on. Yes, right. We'll have, we should have him on the show. He's, yeah, he's, he's certainly still, with my bloody Valentine. Quite a conversationalist, but yeah, he turned me on to a lot of good music, including including the Pixies. That's probably the first place I ever heard of them. So I, you know, I actually saw them live on their first go around. Not, I, I wasn't like so cool uh, as to say I saw them on the Surfer Rosa tour, but um, I saw them. I think they were opening for it was either the Cure or Bowie. Um, it was one of those two, but, uh, I was definitely a big fan, uh, at the time. And of course their, uh, you know, their contribution to musical culture, there's a couple of things. Number one, they're one of those, you know, nascent bands from the eighties who gave of themselves so that others could come through and share and, and really, um, uh, take advantage of the wealth, uh, the Pixies, the replacements, REM, uh, some of these bands, you know, uh, certainly w- replacements didn't really get to taste any of that success. The Pixies were uh, a little bit like their 4AD label mates, the Cocteau Twins, not really in style, but in impact because they sort of were the sound of the 90s before the 90s. Right. Happened. So that, right. So you just uh, got to my number two. Go for it. Your number two. Which yeah. Is- the number two of w- what their lasting legacy is quiet loud. Quite right. So that was one of the things they sort of pioneered was the uh, that became very common, the sort of extreme dynamics that became known as quiet loud. And we're not talking about a build. We're talking about like on a dime. Right. So, you know, used very influential um, to Nirvana, especially who used this dynamic a lot, especially you know on their t- on uh, both in utero and uh, never mind. Yeah, especially. So for those who are not in the know, let's just give you a quick sweep. Um, you know, Black Francis is the primary songwriter. Um, they formed in 1986 in Boston, the greatest city in the country. Um, and until the year 2013, the band was Black Francis, uh, uh, singing on rhythm guitar uh, and writing all the t- uh, all, most, if not all, the tunes. Joey Santiago on lead guitar, Kim Deal uh, on bass and backing vocals, and David Lovering on drums. 
And it was not long from their inception as a, a unit to uh, making amazing music. It, it didn't take them long to get it together and to start. Um, they're one of those cementing weird their bands. legacy right away. Yeah, they're. I mean, they're actually one of those weird bands that, like, right out of the gate, created a Rosetta Stone that was kind of perfect unto itself, and they kept pulling from this thing throughout their entire career. So mm-hmm. actually, I think they, you know, kind of came out of the gate fully formed. Well, they also, they're the kind of band that, you know, they had their priorities straight from a very early, you know, right. it was really, they're extremely... They knew who they were. They, they right. didn't go through a phase where they had to regurgitate influences. Yeah, well, they didn't have a gimmick. They didn't, like, right. look like a certain sort of thing. Their, no. their strengths were that their quality as, a, as musicians and the, the quality of the songwriting... Yeah, and also just the sort of appealing personalities of both Frank Black, Black Francis, I guess we'll refer to him here, and uh, and Kim Deal. Um, you know, they're just smart and talented people uh, making tasteful music and making yeah. good choices. So that's kind of the, the, at the core of what they do right from the beginning. Also, so, they they have a great visual aesthetic. That that those particular four people have a really good visual aesthetic. Yeah, I mean, also they there's sort of a confidence and kind of a swagger yes, to what yeah. they're doing, and um, they have that thing that certain we've talked about this before on the show. That certain kind of thing that clicks into place when the right group of people get together. Right, and, and, right. You know, you really need, as it turns so out, you talk, really do need all four of them. Let's talk about out. how that particular group of people came together. So it was the core was. Um, you had Black Francis, who uh, whose name is Charles Michael Kittredge Thompson the Fourth, and Joey Santiago. The two of them met when they lived next to each other um, uh, while they were at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. The two of them enjoyed a nice jam or two together. Um, Black Francis went on a student exchange trip to Puerto Rico, studied Spanish, thank God for us, um, and uh, things did not go well. He came back to Amherst after six months, dropped out of school, uh, and in 1984, the two of them worked in a warehouse in Boston, um, Black Francis composing songs on acoustic guitar, writing lyrics on the T. They formed a band officially in January 86, and then two weeks later, the famous advertisement, uh, Black Francis placed uh, an advertisement seeking a bass player. An advertisement. Advertisement. Seeking a bass player who liked both the folk act Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the alternative rock band Who's Credo. Probably had one of those little tab thingies you pull off. I love those. Love those things. Mm. Uh, The only person who responded was Kim Deal, and she arrived at the audition without a bass, because she'd never played one before. She joined the band. Uh, then she recommended her sister Kelly, her twin sister Kelly, to uh, to come audition. That didn't work out. David Lovering did. All of a sudden, they were a band. Right? That's so right. That's the what, basic what did wind up happening fortuitously for them is that um, they were noticed by a, um, a producer named Gary Smith, who was a manager at Fort Apache Studios. He told the band he couldn't sleep until you guys are world famous. Yeah, Fort Apache is kind of a big deal in the Boston scene. A lot of records were made there. Pretty much all at the local like alternative bands. It was mm-hmm. like a, a kind of a linchpin of that uh, of that scene there. So um, kind of not surprising that they found themselves right in the, in the mix of that place. Um, this seems like this was the guy. I mean, this was the key that unlocked door number one, phase number one, 
The Great Stuff, 1987 to 2004. So the first thing to come down the pike is something that I didn't even know about until this trawl. Did you? Uh, no. Okay, so in 1987, they compiled this uh, this demo tape. This was not uh, their very first demo, apparently, but it's called The Purple Tape. Well, they, I think they kind of figured they were making a record when they were making this. Right, right. Yeah. right. This was supposed to be a thing. So, uh, But this was uh, a 17 tracks known informally as The Purple Tape, and then eight songs of these were sliced off and used um, later that year as the band's debut as an EP, Come On Pilgrim. Right. So right away, the, this, the guitar stylings, Black Francis is kind of the hold it down with the rhythm kind of guy, and Joey is doing a lot of the noisy squall kind of stuff. So that they kind of have that template built into a lot of their material. Um, you know, Joey Santiago's guitar stuff is pretty cool. There's a lot of like yeah. vibey. Um, you know, feedback, noisy squall stuff. That's, you know, most of the, uh, the arrangements um, are just basic, simple guitar, bass, guitar, you know, drums, two guitar, bass, drums. Um, so when they play live, they can make it sound exactly like the record. They, they, everything was pretty well worked out, very well arranged. They had their shit together at a very early, the, you know, <laughs> at the, a very early w- stage. W- what's kind of interesting this early on is that the first few things when they bring on different producers and nudge the different sides of their personalities, it really affects the material. Yeah. So this is kind of the most straightforward. This is the most demo-ish in quality. In other words, there's no... doesn't feel like there's a producer trying to get his sonic imprint across. Yeah, in general, um, their records, even um, to the uh, latter-day records they've made, kind of sound like records of their time. Mm-hmm. They've never really been purists about, like, a oh, word like, naturalist recording. Right, there's, like, right. there's, like, digital reverb on stuff, some stuff that sounds kind of 80s. In their case, it's it's sort of, like, adds to the ambiance of it. It's, it, it the, the, at least... Um, the first few records still sound really good, even yeah. though they have those sort of dated touches on them in a way. They make it kind of work for them. All right. Th- this, you know, hearing it, I, I only knew Come On Pilgrim uh, up, yeah, until, so like half up of, until like a week ago. Right. So the, per- the Come On Pilgrim is their amazing debut. It's incredible. EPM, yeah. And it's ba- it's like half of but what this the is Purple like, Tape was. Yeah. this is, It's almost exactly half. And the rest of it is incredible. There's only a couple songs that aren't flat out amazing. There's a out of this. Let, let me put it this way: there's 17 songs. Um, 15 of them would be, um, w- as far as I'm concerned, are going on the playlist. Yeah, and you could. It's kind of curious that uh, when 4AD signed them and put "Come On Pilgrim" out, that they wanted to do it as an EP with um, and not just add like at least two or three more songs to it to make it right. a full length. It's an eight-song kind of longish EP where you yeah. could have easily made. A, there's, t- I mean, ju- th- there's tons of material. Yeah, this. they were kind of holding some of it back for some reason. It, I, it's uh, and they were picking from it later. Uh, you know, subcultures on here. That's you know that came yeah, out I can't in believe they, didn't, they wouldn't have put a "Break My Body" on it. Which yeah, is an amazing song. Here comes your man is on here for God's sake. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, and, and you know why they didn't put it on here? Or, or they never they wanted it on a record. The Pixies never wanted it. To oh, be really? Is yeah. that okay? Yeah. Okay, so just the first song, "Levitate Me," is 
it was always my my favorite song on Come On Pilgrim because it is like Beach Boys punk. It almost has like a Descendants kind of yeah, a thing, in the, in the, but on a different level, more more sophisticated. It's the last song on Come On Pilgrim, but it works yeah. so good as an opener. It was it's supposed to be the opener killer. for uh, the Purple Tape, um, which and the sequencing of the Purple Tape is kind of a more conventional album sort of sequencing, like all, kind of all the really strongest song stuff is right up front you know at the the kind of more um, song oriented stuff but then they mix it up a lot in those first like five or six songs that, that's yeah yeah what it would have been levitate is, me holiday song i've been tired break my body yeah, yeah oh, those four that's in like a the row sequence that's a crazy intro that is really really strong yeah, and then the sequencing of come on pilgrim is a little weird it's like it's kind of more yeah. much more curveball-y right. um, um in nature but um still amazing but it is uh, but I mean, you have uh, let's see, Caribou, uh, Nimrod's Son. Well, all that stuff. You know, that was on Come On Pilgrim. But the stuff that wasn't. Uh, here comes your man, Subaculture, uh, Broken Face, um, uh, Down to the Well, which wound yeah, up most being of the on really ace Bossa ones Nova. they revisited and put out in other records. Yeah, um, I'm amazed. I, very, very, very strong. Um, it's Two just, of the really good ones, you know, Rock of My Soul and Down to the Well. Right, um, they right. shunted them off on like an EP that was given away with the magazine. <laughs> that's that's where those were released at the time. I mean, this is this is uh, just one of the thing, one of those things where the band did emerge fully formed. Yeah, they had an embarrassment of riches. They had too much yeah. material, to and it's from. a Whitman sampler for the template of the band, and they drew from it until there was basically nothing left throughout the rest of their career, but it's all here. I would say maybe so, a little bit on Doolittle, they branched out a little, like, you know, like a Monkey's Gone to Heaven or something. It's sort yeah, of like yeah. Another, yeah. They, but for <clears throat> the most part, they pretty much are showing everything they can do on, right, on, right. on that purple tape, uh, you know, on that record. The key thing for me here is the brutal undertow of the combined sound of these particular players Crossed with a surf twang of the sound and melody, it brings something very special into the Pixies world that kind of is the through line for the rest of their career. Right, and there's also kind of a throwback quality to it um, that if you did this now, there's a very live take kind of sound to Mm -hmm. everything. They they have these songs really well rehearsed. You know, they go in and they play the shit out of them and they pick a good take. And then that's, you know, nowadays there's the temptation to sort of go back and fix stuff and it's right, like, you right. know, get the great take. But they were such a, a seasoned band that played with such great chemistry together that that's really that part of it's really like palpable to me. This this the sound of them playing in a room. I feel like, you know, at the risk of uh, having a get off my lawn kind of moment, I feel like that's <laughs> kind of been lost a little bit. Since you know everybody does everything in Pro Tools now or whatever. Um, well, let, let's look at the the two things. So we're looking at we need to review the Purple Tape and Come On Pilgrim. I would give the Purple Tape uh, four and a half stars and Come On Pilgrim five stars. Um, I gave them both five stars. Okay, that works. Um, you know, this whole first phase of their career is pretty it's spot- stunning. It's pretty spotless. It's stunning. It's um, it's very easily could have been a five. I just knew what was coming down the pike right around the corner here. So, um, all right. So Surfer Rosa, 1988, produced by Steve Albini and sort of a template in a domino effect thing that started with Surfer Rosa, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, in the chain, in the sort of DNA chain, is it Big Black then directly to Pixies, Surfer Rosa, then to PJ Harvey, then to In Utero? 
Uh, that's the correct order, yeah. Okay. I think there's other stuff Albini But was did there in something there. in between before Surfer Rosa? He made other records. I don't know. You know, I'm sure he made other stuff. This was obviously an important one. Yeah. I mean, um, he did stuff like Jesus Lizard, stuff like that. But that's yeah, a little yeah. later. That's a little yeah. later. Um, so this is obviously has a very different twist on their sound. Um, this is a much more violent sounding record, both in terms of the music and the actual lyrics. Um, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, he's singing about mutilation and voyeurism. <clears throat> he's, uh, you know, it's miked in a much different way. Uh, it has a vibe of, you know, I mentioned this during the the PJ Harvey uh, uh, podcast too, but that uh, thing of Georges Bataille's story of the eye, where it's just like, you know, eyeballs and fucking and sweat and, um, you know, all boiled down in a surrealistic stew. Yeah, um, there's this. He has a sort of gothic, like uh, in in the sense of everything being ultra dramatic, sort of sense right, of, right. of lyrics. A lot of like biblical quotations and you know allegories. And well, he grew up in a in a very Catholic household. Right. His dad was actually friends with uh, Captain Beefheart. Mm-hmm. I don't I know if you know knew that. that. I did not know that. And actually, um, uh, this was Black Francis's dad's original name for Doolittle, and the name that was the working title hmm. for the record was Whore. Oh, right. That, that I did Like read, a biblical yeah. right, whore. Right, right. Um, so it's just an interesting thing to know about his background. But um, so they didn't, oddly, I didn't know this, but they, Albini was recommended to them. Uh, but throwing muses, I think, right? He yeah, they muses. didn't even care one way or the other. They were like, okay, whatever, we'll just use this guy. It wasn't like a thing, like it wasn't like a ah, moment right. for them. It was just like, here's our producer. Albini said some unflattering things about them in the years after. I don't know if you saw that in the course of researching this. So around, what, what was it exactly? He basically said that they sucked. And like in a, few, a, few years, a few years later in like 91, he basically said something to the effect of like, you know, they just wanted to be famous and successful. They would have done anything. They were like cows being led around with rings in their noses. He has since said that that was a very foolish thing to say, that he underestimated them and didn't really fully appreciate them. So it doesn't seem like it was a super great working relationship. He trashed them pretty unequivocally just a few years later. Um, so, but it, they they he they did get a great they record. Great, out of it. Yeah, they it's did odd to me that he together. that he made this record and didn't see how great it really was. He didn't seem to really appreciate it. Um, well, you know, uh, the, it always seems to be if you know if you're a real Pixies fan, you know the real argument is Surfer Rosa or Doolittle. Um, and through the years, I was always a Doolittle guy. <clears throat> and uh, spoiler alert, uh, this time around, this one, I was listening to it on my birthday, and it was it was really surprising me. It had been a long time since I'd listened to this, and it has a very visceral power. And my memories of listening to this record are never sitting and listening to it. Mm-hmm. It was always full physiological involvement, like, you know, just like, you know, air guitar and just like, you know, throwing my head back when I had a neck to speak of. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really liked them kind of both almost pretty equally. And they were in that in that early phase of their career, just all, all the things that are their strengths, they're really it's, it's they're really working in that way. They play as a band. They've you know, the, the songs are kind of seem very well 
thought out and arranged and, and rehearsed and demoed ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they they, and they is, come right on the heels. Is, they come right on the heels of each other. They made all these like one a year. All that what you just talked about, you know, demoing before going into the studio, being fully prepared like that. Uh, that was his working method up until Bossa Nova. Right. Um, so it's, it really mm-hmm. has the spirit of a band. Right. Because they're all kind of like, you know, developing things over, you know, they, they can take their time to develop the songs, make demos, see what works, what doesn't. Right. We have to talk about the importance, obviously, of Kim Deal here. Uh, you know, without uh, not just Kim Deal's presence, her bass work is incredibly important to this record. Her background vocals bring a lot to the table. She's not just, you know, your run-of-the-mill background vocalist. She's, you know, I um, it's if you've ever seen um, R.E.M. play live, Right, mm-hmm. it's a, it's they they sound very REM ish when Mike Mills starts to sing. Yes, when he sings his yes. backups. It's like wow, oh, this yeah, even like wordless vocals. So same thing with the uh, Pixies to me. When when it's Kim singing a part, it's often like a counterpoint kind of part or like a part that's off in the background. But her voice is that extra element is like such an important color. Um, to the band, it's just like her personality kind of always really comes through in her voice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's when she's not in the picture anymore, it's you really, you really miss her. Yeah, uh, you presence. really feel it. Um, let's talk about the songs in this particular uh, ball of wax. The songs here are absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, a lot of iconic, uh, highly recognizable, uh, you know, festival favorites. Class, not you know, not uh, just great songs, but yeah, really, really, really great songs. So like Bone, Bone Machine, yeah, the opener. So 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 you had the Purple Tape. You you heard what they were like on Come On Pilgrim, but from the first slam of the drums, you know it's Albini. Uh, it's heavier, it's sludgier, thicker, it's syrupier. That, it has that uh, signature room room tone. Yeah, you can hear it sound. from across the way, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, I, and the lyrics, which I'm not even a lyric guy, but, you know, I was talking with Peachy Peach about Kissy Kiss. Will you take me in the parking lot, buy me a soda, hip, hip, hip? Yeah, they really are the kind of band that's worth kind of like doing a little bit of a, some research into the lyrics. And, you know, I, I did that. A, yeah. I found myself doing that a lot for the purposes of this show, like what he's really writing about. He's a very sophisticated lyricist. System, very, very clever. Yep. Very and, and uh mixes the uh, kind of low and high art of it all really well. Yeah, but Bone Machine is an amazing opener. Even better for me, uh, and possibly uh well, it's one of the three best on the record is Break My Body. Yeah, Break My Body. I love the main uh the, the guitar figure. The main the chord notes. change, yeah. 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 So, so it's, good. It's guys what's called a tritone in it. So the tritone is kind of also known as like the devil's interval. It's like the, it's used a lot kind of in heavy metal. It's sort of a inherently dissonant kind of sound. Uh-huh. It's three full steps um, above whatever your root note is. So the, the way the chord changes, the first chord is like a G6, which is kind of like a sort of jazzy chord. And then it's the E natural that makes that a G6. And then when they switch to a B flat for the second chord, it's that E is E natural is still ringing and that's the tritone. So it has this very unsteady, like an open note. Yeah. It just has a very like unsteady, like, like unresolved kind of mm-hmm. sound to it. Right, and that, right. That's why it was always kind of known as the devil's interval. It was like, a, in certain cultures, it was like, you're not allowed to use the tritones. It's supposed to be like satanic. That's sounding. interesting. And, I, and it is also the, uh, the, the, the song black Sabbath by black uh-huh, Sabbath. Yeah, that's yeah. the tritone. That's, that's Bow, the where? So, yeah. There's a moment in the in Break My Body I want to talk with you about that I was actually looking forward to talking with you about. 
the incredibly sick fucking descending note solo mm-hmm. that blends back into the verse guitar figure. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking it's about? A, this, the whole song what is... What in the fuck? That, it's very that sophisticated so harmonically, cool. the, the whole song. It's um, it, you know, it's dissonant and it all... But they really use dissonance. But so pleasing, Yeah, though. they use dissonance in a way that's really original. That, yeah. That it really is... It's such a key to their sound. There's a lot of like... Um, Chord changes that they'll do. A lot of it's in in uh, the the writing. You know, it's in Black Francis's writing. They'll you know they'll make a chord move that sounds like it's like going to be a typical move, but then it's just a half step right, higher. Right. There's always a little bit of unexpected and then, dissonance and, then, and tension. And then one thing that they do very very well is the whole screamo thing. He's a right. great screamo guy. Yeah. The next song, Something Against You, could be my favorite on the entire record. It's yeah. just fucking brutal. There's the whole run of songs from uh, like gigantic River Euphrates, Where Is My Mind, the whole mid-album run of like, it's at such a high It's just point. everything. No, because yeah. it doesn't end. So yeah. they'll just end, let's just list them. It's, you know, after that broken phase, gigantic River Euphrates, which is what could be the most evil sounding nasty howling rock and roll song on the entire record gigantic is so great because it's so it's so subversive it's sort of this like uh the the gigantic penis penis seems like it's it's at the very minimum a song about a gigantic penis see i didn't even i never really listened to the lyrics yeah it's it's very subversive very naughty clever uh lyric gigantic a big 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 love i think she says big big love yeah Yeah. and then uh tony's theme i love oh my golly uh Super intense. Uh, it just reminds me of Mexican jumping beans, the, the way that uh, their mm-hmm. songs move. And then at the end of that, you have that you fucking die spoken word section that mm-hmm. I referenced in the cold mm-hmm. open. Vamos, I'm amazed. There's no there's no bad songs on well, the Well, then Where thing. Is My Mind is maybe their most, uh, right, their most right. well-known song, it's actually. Been I think because, that has the most Spotify streams. It's become synonymous with Creeping Dread and is a cottage industry in itself with regard to being... Uh, uh, needle dropped in movies. Yeah, that song is also endlessly imitated. I feel like uh, today by the Smashing Pumpkins is kind uh-huh, of that kind of song. Uh-huh. Um, the Sweater Song by Weezer is another one very influenced by uh, by Where Is My Mind. Sounds great at a festival. The what, whole audience what, sings along to it and stuff. What I had uh, in the early 90s was a, a CD that had Surfer Rosa and Come On Pilgrim on it. And man, did that get a lot of plays. Yeah. Uh, Surfer Rosa is a stone-cold classic. It Any self-respecting music fan has it in their library. It's a hard five. Yep, five stars for me. And then moving right along, we're still at, working at a furious pace here. In 1989, we have Doolittle. Um, although it is um, probably their most accessible album, it is also... Uh, probably uh, their their most brutal and violent record in a weird way. Um, <clears throat> a lot of people think it's their their best. And one odd thing about the sales figures for it is that it has continued to sell at a very strong rate over the years, nonstop. Yeah, this is probably their most well known um, record because it just became platinum in two thousand eighteen. Right, right. I saw them play this um, in its entirety. The reunited lineup of it, but with Kim Deal. Um, oh, that's cool. In probably like, I don't know, 2009 or 10 or something. Nice. And um, it was great. She, <laughs> They played the whole album, and then they're done, and they play an encore. I think they, I don't know, they played like a Gigantic for the encore, and then a, maybe a couple other songs. And then they called out, <laughs> I remember, uh, you know, uh, Black Francis called out a, another tune, and she made the... Um, 
Hang, uh, hanging myself hanging, gesture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she really didn't want to be jamming anymore. <laughs> Which I, it said a lot, really, about the whole scenario. Yeah, yeah. That was that was the tag end. It, it got grim after that. But yeah, we'll, so we'll Doolittle, um, Gil Norton comes on as producer. Yep, um, yep. So starting a long association with them. He's you know Gil Norton's made a million records. He had made. He was kind of most known at that time for having done Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnymen. Mm-hmm. What he really brought to the table, from what I've read, is the tension that was set up. What actually this is uh, what Black Francis said. Gil Norton was always trying to get them to be more commercial. Okay, and he always wanted to increase track lengths because they were coming in with these super short uh, songs. And eventually, um, Black took uh, Gil Norton to a record store where he uh, jammed a copy of Buddy Holly's Greatest Hits in his hands, uh, with of course every song being about two minutes, and said, "If it's good enough for Buddy Holly." Dot, dot, dot. Right. So I think Gil Norton also is doing a little bit of cleaning up of their sound. Doolittle is a little bit more like uh, kind of separated in the mix. It's a little mm-hmm. bit more of a sort of uh, clean sort of mix. There's kind of like digital reverb on it. It's a good sounding record. Um, Sounds great, I think. I think it has a little bit of 80s-ness to it, but that one has held up quite I can't well. really pick it up very well. It does a little bit. It has a little bit of gated reverby stuff here and there, and, and other kind of things. He went on to do like the, He's probably still most famous for making those Pixies records. He went. He did like Foo Fighters and like he did like Belly, Catherine Wheel, Counting Crows, like food, You know, wow. This is a list of bands I've never really listened to. Well, he did a lot of. The point is, he did a lot of big records um, yeah. in the '90s and and the, in the early 2000s. But really, I think based mostly off his reputation for this making is, these Pixies records. Yeah. This this is a this is kind of a perfect tension because uh, as Black Francis also said he said Doolittle is uh, him trying to make us shall I say commercial and us trying to remain somewhat grungy and you can hear it the tension is split right down the middle and another tension that uh, bubbled over during this time during the recording of Doolittle is apparently when the tension between uh, Kim Deal and Black Francis became visible to everyone. Right. They had also been on the road a lot, and that mm-hmm. has its that brings its own sort of like uh, tension to things. That brings its own sort of like you, know, you get into a lot of little petty arguments with people. Yeah, and, yeah. And um, so you know they did Surfer Rosa, and then did a ton of touring on that. And they were, I think, they came in to do a little even more together as a band. Um, you know, and I, so that they benefited from that. But I think, yeah, probably just the amount of time they're spending together. And this, if you think about it, man, this is an enormously influential record, not just on here's the things that influenced. First of all, I remember seeing Monkey Gone to Heaven on 120 Minutes all the time. Yeah. Sure. So as far as the formation and building block foundation of of college rock alternative radio, this was a major component. This, yeah, this is sort of just album. before it starts to really blow up a few years later right. and becomes part of the mainstream. This is sort of like the college rock, you know, um, starting to step into the forefront. And then, like, if you look just at the song Tame, forget right. about every other song on the record, yeah. just Tame alone sets up the sonic blueprint for for Sugar, for <clears throat> for Nirvana, for God knows how many bands. Yeah, they're kind of like, in a way... Um, like they're the the you know especially the first two records the, the 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 like the Velvet Underground in terms of the outsized influence they had right you know, yeah and, and like yeah. their their popularity related to their later in, their influence on other musicians it's true they had yeah. a really outsized influence on the next decade of music really so if I'd like to train the the magnifying glass all the way the motherfuck down on this one let's talk a, a first about uh, the opening triumvirate to me. 
it is probably the peak Pixies. It's to me has not gotten better than this or was ever better. First is uh, was probably my favorite Pixie song of all time, "Debaser," yeah, which is the like the platonic ideal of a Pixie song. It, it really is. Number one, you have the ultimate screamo. Number two, it's got you, the great energy of them playing. They really, yeah. it's a great ensemble playing, great parts. Everyone, it's playing. one of the perfect opening songs an album has ever had. Plus, the lyrics are about Louis Bunuel. I mean, you don't get any cooler than that. And plus, you have like a party song about Louis Bunuel. Um, That's interesting talking about the lengths of the songs here because I, pretty much every song is under three minutes on this yeah. record. Um, I think there's one that's maybe three thirty or something, and but, most of them are like two. Right? Yeah, they, they it's almost guided by they voices. Make, they make their point and they get out, and um, I think that's a big part of the appeal. You know, most songs that are really great two and a half minute songs aren't going to be better if you make them four minute songs. No. No. Gil Norton and, notwithstanding. Right. All right. You got Debaser, Tame, and Wave of Mutilation. That triumvirate right there is incredible. But honestly, there's not a bad song on the entire record. Um, Even the sort of more throwaway ones are really interesting. Like, you know, the ones that are kind of like the sort of punk, punky little rave ups like Crackety Jones. Crackety Jones. Crackety Jones um, is great. Yeah. No, they're, they're interesting and they and play even, them so great. even La La Love You, which is definitely a throwaway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more of a, a skewering of a love song kind yeah. of a thing. And David Lovering is the one singing it. Right. But even that earns its place on the record. Um, you have more quiet, loud spectacularness with number 13, baby. There, that's a sleeper tune. That's one of the better, un- yeah. n- kind of not as well-known uh, Pixie songs, I think. Number 13, baby. And There Goes My Gun is probably the best song on the on the second side. First side is probably a little bit more uh, mind-blowing in terms of the you know one-after-the-other classics. Yeah. Great closer, too. Gouge Away. Gouge Away is amazing. Are- totally lethal-sounding. Um, and it's pretty apt lyrical summation of the violence and dynamics of the band as a whole. Yeah. So the staying power of Doolittle is really undeniable at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like, it's, it's a foundational record. Um, you know, I mean, we've, we've, we've it's, you know, it came out in what? 89, 88, 88. So it's 88, but really it's like, it's like 1992. They're just there right. before everybody else. Right. You know, this is what things sounded like, you know, four or five years later. Yeah. They, they got there first. This is the gold standard for the Pixies. It's, it's a, it is ridiculously influential. I know that I played the living shit out of my cassette and then I played the living shit out of my CD and I am currently playing the living shit out of the invisible MP3s floating around the cloud. <laughs> Yeah, um, here comes your man. It's another one on this. It's a great song. They, I mean, he wrote it when he was fourteen, uh-huh. um, and they were never really comfortable with. It. They always called it the Tom Petty song. <laughs> <laughs> they refer to so it. It's so funny, and they had to be really talked into putting it on the record. It's so funny to me how punks always needed validation that something wasn't too catchy in order to proceed with it. Yeah, they're such funny little people. Anyway, growing up in my house, this was in constant rotation along with myself and my sister. Hard five. What do you give it, Joseph? Yeah, five stars. Um, so they're, I, they have fives across the board for me um, yeah. up so far. Yeah. And then in 1989, no, no albums come out, but you have the amazing, back when compilations could be amazing, and you didn't just have one great act and a bunch of bands that would be split up in a week or two, but the Neil Young Bridge compilation from 89... Their contribution, his a cover of his song "Winter Long," is a five star, incredible song. Goes on the playlist. Check out the playlist in the show notes, folks. You'll find it in there. 
Yep, that's a good one. They did a couple of those, right? They did a, didn't they do another Neil Young? After uh, it comes later. Yeah, they, they did the song they from did. the first album. I've been album. waiting for yeah, you right. on a, as a B side. Right. Nothing really to write home about, but um, it's certainly an odd choice for uh, for a cover from him. Yeah. Uh, in 1990, they entered the decade kind of on a weird note. Now, I, I do want to mention something. <clears throat> All the the references to the violence of the band and the violence of the lyrics is now a, a proposition that's in our rear view. Yeah, so we, we didn't really touch on that, but there's also kind of a, a several songs about incest that's kind of a running theme, that whether they're either directly or indirectly about that topic, that's that's another kind of disturbing kind of theme that comes up a lot in the... In the, in the, in the comes up several times in the first couple of records. Right, but Break, now, Break My Body in particular is one. You know, it's, it's weird, but as soon as we get to Bossa Nova, they sound like a college rock band. They no longer sound... And by the way, I'm not dissing it. I'm just saying that they no longer sound dangerous. Yeah, this record I never really got into, and I, it didn't really floor me on this listen either. They, they their process changed quite a bit. Where they're writing, yes. it, they wrote it kind of mostly in the studio, and I think it suffers for that a little bit. Right, um, right. So I don't feel like they have this the the really inventive sense of like arrangements and the same kind of like uh, you know personality. To there, the there were all it's more straightforward. Of, there were all kinds of differences here. Um, you know, they they were no longer in Boston in January 1990. They, they did they, this in L.A. Yeah, they moved out to L.A. <clears throat> and Kim Deal stayed in the in the U.K. to record the Breeders' first album with Albini. Uh, later met them in L.A., but I'm guessing that couldn't have helped. Um, but um, <clears throat> they were out in L.A. doing this. Um, Black Francis said, uh, so I was writing lyrics on napkins five minutes before I sang. Sometimes it's good, sometimes not. That's just the nature of that songwriting. They were staying at the Oakwood Apartments. Do you know what those are? So no. the, the Oakwood Apartments are like in like you know you know like Burbank, Studio City. There's a few different locations, and they're meant for people who come out here to like work on a movie, mm-hmm. or come out here to work on like a TV show or something for a short time. Um, they're usually, and so the, it was they were lived there, and then um, the band White Lion was there at the oh, same yeah. time. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> as was um, Garrett Morris from SNL was staying at the Oakwood Apartments. So that was like their That's hang. Awesome. That was their hang for a I while when him. they were making Boston. Thank yeah. God. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah, that is weird. So another big difference uh, is that, well, at least according to Santiago, jo- Joey Santiago said that the band only practiced for two weeks in contrast to, you know, the previous dynamic when the band would just be rehearsing constantly in Boston. Yeah, that's a pretty big difference. That's a yeah. pretty major difference in process. Um, and you just get a lot less detail on, on yeah. you know, you know, on on Doolittle, you know, those little guitar lines are like also well worked right, out. Right. And, you know, it, it sounds perfect. It was probably Every a lot of pieces in its There was place. probably a lot of trial and error to get right. to get to that. So Bossa Nova also suffers the same producer Gil Norton, but it, the the sound suffers because it's very bright. It is very very bright, bright and it tinny is. sounding. It is, and there's kind of <clears> more of a reliance on sort of like of the period kind of drum sounds. There's mm-hmm. some kind of ugly sounds on this one to me. So this one is m- way more about vibe than it is about songwriting to me. Um, this is their alien surfer vibe based record. The problem mainly to me is that it dynamically, it just kind of sits there and doesn't leap out at you. Yeah, and it seems like the palette of sounds got smaller. The the songs just aren't there. I and, mean, that's and the, the songs. Yeah. 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 It's, it's there. It, it is still part of their purple patch, 
but it's the worst one from their purple patch. But cherry picked, the heights are as good as anything they've ever done. And oddly, the openers and closers, uh, notwithstanding Cecilia Ann, the openers and closers are the greatest heights they achieve here. So <clears throat> it's kind of a 7-10 split on this record. Rock music and Valoria are fucking amazing. Yeah, Valoria is one and of then, the real great singles. And then um, Stormy Weather and Havelina are fucking amazing. So yeah, Havelina's great. That's the best parts of the record is the, is the beginning and end. Rock music is, <clears throat> I've always loved it, it's the pure distilled essence of rock and roll. So it's just howling and screaming and carrying on. There's a little bit less of just dynamics on this record. They're not yeah. really doing quiet loud so much. It's kind of like loud, loud. Yeah, a lot, loud, a lot, loud. A lot of time, you know. It's true. Um, and not like not like you got to do the same gambit over and over again, but I think there's just sort of a little bit less of like uh, it seems like fewer things happen on this yeah. record or something. Yeah, and it's longer. It feels longer, more ambient, but not in a good way necessarily. Look, the 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 best songs are going to be plucked and yeah. Valoria is a real gem and has that kind of weeping theremin going along with it. Valoria is incredible. Like it was romantic kind of song, you know. Like it um, was the single and it deserved to be. Dig for Fire was as well. Yeah, Dig for Fire is kind of almost like kind of a Talking Heads kind of thing to me a little bit. Yeah, really it's a super satisfying chorus. That's a good tune. Yeah, Anna's um, a good tune. Anna's a good tune. That's an, that one's kind of like as a little bit of a breather, very much like Black Francis style of the right of like harmonically and melodically. Um, Valuri is the obvious. Yeah, uh, that one's a real gem. But that then Hav- Havelina is to me the uh, uncovered gem from this one. Yeah. Yeah, Valoria was lo- kind of well-known. It was kind of the single. Yeah, yeah, but Havelina, Stormy Weather, um, rock music. There's good stuff here. Check out the playlist. Uh, Hang Wire, you like that one? That kind of has a good, like, quiet, loud thing. That's Hang kind Wire's of like, that's okay. a little bit more like a Doolittle-ish kind of song to me. Yeah, this one, you know, it left me uh, colder than I was expecting. Yeah, this one, I, I, I never w- really got into this one. I never did say. either, yeah. but I there was always stuff I liked about it, and I kept coming back to it. Because the vibe is pretty strong. Yeah. Uh, but the songs just aren't there. I give it uh, three and a half stars. I gave it three. Okay. The only other thing they did in 1990 is um, is they tossed a song off uh, offhandedly on Ruby Yacht, Electra's 40th anniversary compilation, uh, a cover of Paul Butterfield Band's Born in Chicago, totally run-of-the-mill, two stars. I gave it one and a half. It's kind of just a basic 12 bar blues. Not really. I do urge you to uh, super urge you to seek out the original, which is pretty incendiary. Mm -hmm. In 1991, uh, I can't forget a Leonard Cohen cover off of I'm Your Fan, the songs of Leonard Cohen. This is kind of definitely worth rescuing off of our incredible playlist, which you'll find in the Spotify notes or on our website, discography.com. Three and a half stars for I Can't Forget. I quite enjoyed this one and gave it four stars and i think it's an improvement over the original which was on the album i'm your man which is kind of a weird sounding record that i've had never really been able to get into never could understand um, i'm your man either but um i think their version kind of rescues the song a little bit and i think it makes it there it's kind of a snappy like little punky little version of it uh, this a good, one a good little was tune. surprising yeah. never, never had heard it yeah. um okay so in 91 uh they uh moved along to record trompe le monde which you know externally kind of looked like Doolittle 15 songs shorter songs uh this was recorded in uh, in Burbank in Paris in London uh produced by Gil Norton again this was their last uh record 
before their uh, breakup uh, in 1993. Right. So and they, also the very last one to feature Kim Deal. Yeah, th- I think by the time, um, you know, they were already starting to find these records difficult to make on Doolittle as far back as that. I think they described the process of that record as not being very fun to make. And then um, I think even less so the uh, Bossa Nova and Tromplemon. They were kind of like starting to be a grind to make, to make yeah. those records. They made a lot of, they made them all kind of right back to back. So the, this know, whole the, run is from 97, I, I was, 87 to 91. I was 91. buying these when they were coming out, and it didn't seem like anything was wrong with the band while I was buying and listening to this record. Yeah. But if you, you know, you sort of zoom out, you know, the lead single is a cover, um, and they're grabbing songs from the Purple Tape, which was, you know, five years prior. Um, there definitely were warning signs. And there. there's less and less of Kim as these records kind of go on. She doesn't even really sing very much uh, backup vocals. On, yeah, there's on none of her songs on this. And yeah. she's basically erased. A lot of people feel about this record as they do um, uh, All Shook Down by The Replacements, which is that this is basically the first Frank Black record. Yeah, it's the first, it's, it's the first sort of de facto Frank Black record. Yeah, you, yeah. You, it's sort of, yeah. I, th- I think you're getting a lot less of that um, band dynamic where, like, you know, kind of, I, I, th- I do yeah. think this record's an improvement over Bossa Nova. I think they have, yeah. so, I oh, think yeah. they have better for sure. songs. For sure. And, um, it's, but not it's, a massive improvement, it, less so than I thought at the time. It's better sonically, and I think there's they have there's, yeah. a, there's a I, I it's almost weird. There's so, better it's sort of songs. Like the high highs are better probably on Bossa Nova. They like are the, the very they top are. songs uh, on Bossa Nova are probably better than the very best songs on Trompe Le Monde. Yeah, Trompe Le Monde is sort of a consistency to it, and it's more listenable. I think uh, mainly because it's better sonically. But there's nothing that strangles you, and that's because here we are in the group's career. So right. this one always felt to me like a like sort of pop punk ready mades. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very sharp melodies, uh, very slick production. Um, it, it definitely feels like a college rock record. It's totally defanged and declawed. There's nothing violent or yeah, uh, this one doesn't seem like it has the extra layers of meaning to it so much. No, uh, no, yeah. no, um, not as dark. Right. So you know, this it definitely is better than Bossa Nova. It's a step in a better direction for the band, um, but it definitely feels, looking back, like a swan song. Yeah, it, get, it does get a little samey in the middle. There's kind of a lot of songs that kind of kind of blend together for me. Yeah. Um, the, the the first five songs out of the gate are really great. Yeah. The record loses its footing a little bit after that, but Trump Lamond, Planet of Sound, Alec Eiffel, Sad Punk, and Head On yeah. are really great. The best song on the album for me is Letter to Memphis. Yeah, it's that middle section, like um, you know, Bird Dream of Olympus Mons. Like Space, sub, I believe in. Subculture. UMass yeah, is yeah. kind of jokey. It's kind of like, yeah. a one, like a one note kind of joke. Exactly. Pretty decent set of songs, though. I, I gave this record three and a half stars, and I actually like this better than I remember liking it. I give it four stars, and I do not like it as much as I remember right. it. Um, but then moving on, we there's a there's a collection of B sides that is uh, very craftily titled B sides. There's nothing that's on that that's going to be in our playlist. Um, but uh, just to let you know, in early 1993, in case you hadn't found out already, Black Francis announced in an interview on BBC that the Pixies were done. The other members of the band found that out just as everyone else did. Um, he had no explanation for anybody. Uh, everyone found out by fax after that. And so he, he kind of makes a couple solo albums that are amazing. Th- they're they're pretty much very much like Trump Lamont. They're, they're, fr- they're, well, they're, they're, they're kind of an, an extension. Kind of, of an improvement, Lamont. I think. Yeah. Frank Black and Teenager of the Year, those two records 
are staggering. For the rest of his whole solo career, he could never gain the momentum to get back there. But those two records are essential. Yeah, and they can yeah, I, I agree. Those totally are both essential. Very, those are both very good. And then obviously Kim Deal returned to the Breeders, um, had a had a big hit with Cannonball uh Platinum on, album on Last, Last Splash in ninety three, uh formed the amps. Um you know, uh, everyone kind of stayed busy and thought that a reunion would be absolutely impossible. Santiago actually wound up playing lead guitar in a bunch of Frank Black albums, um, as well as other people. Um, and there continued to be Pixies stuff coming out on 4AD and Electra, uh, a best of album called Death to the Pixies in 97, Pixies at the BBC in 98, complete B-sides in 2001. Um, then the remainder of the Purple Tape that hadn't gotten released on Come On Pilgrim was released as Pixies in 2002. Yeah, so by then, when that comes out, I think then it's the full, the full clearinghouse that happened. Everything had never right, been, right. that they'd ever, every note they ever recorded had been released pretty much. There's also some Peel Session stuff in there. Um, there's a lot of kind of bonus material like that Peel Sessions live things if you want to dig into that. Right. Um, there's a million live albums on Spotify. Um, so things happen slowly. Okay, as far as them coming back together, as far as, you know, Frank Black would just keep dismissing uh, the rumors, uh, but kept incorporating more and more Pixie songs into his sets sets with the band The Catholics. Um, Occasionally included Joey Santiago in his solo work, and then David Lovering, who became a magician, incorporating him as an opening act to his concerts. Um, Then in 2003, they started talking on the phone, there were some low-key rehearsals, and then boom, a full tour was was announced in February 2004. Within minutes, nearly all of uh, the initial tour dates had been sold out. Right, there was a huge demand for them, and they no doubt started to realize very quickly that they could get giant guarantees to play festivals right. and things of that right. nature. Probably more, they probably you know were. Probably more than they ever made in their but then heyday. The, the yeah, the, so the 2004 reunion tour grossed over 14 million dollars. Yeah, I'm going to guess that they didn't do tours that made 14 million dollars back in their prime. Right, I'm guess right, that probably exactly. Didn't happen. But just to focus on the on the records, you know, uh, they kind of faint left. Uh, th- this is really uh, not representative of the Pixies after they've returned. But in 2004, they released a single called "Bam Thwack." Which is fucking great, and honestly, it's probably the fu- the last great tune that they'll ever make together. I give it four stars. I gave this five stars. I love it this song. It deserves five. I'll I remember. Give it five. I remember when it came out. Yeah, I couldn't so, believe it. I couldn't fucking not only, believe it. Not only is there a Pixies song, but it's a very but good Pixies song. I mean, could you believe it? Right. And notably, so uncool. It's a Kim song. Right. Kim wrote it and sang it. And they were they were trying to record something. It was for some movie. It was like Shrek or something. Like some Shrek movie, Shrek Two or something. They were trying to record like a kids song for that movie. So um, Frank Black. I guess he's Frank Black again by this point. I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know what he is at this point. <laughs> he tried to write some. They weren't really clicking. Kim already had Bam Thwack. They went in and cut it in a sense of in a, in a I think a gesture of goodwill. 
they kind of let her have the single, let her have the writing. You so know, ridiculous! They, it's the only good. It's the only great song that they'll ever do uh, after reuniting. So ever for a minute there, it seemed really exciting. It seemed like oh, they could go yeah. make a record and it would right. be amazing. And not only that, not only that song, but ain't that pretty at all? The Warren Zevon cover off of the compilation "Enjoy Every Sandwich." Uh, that was good. That's got Not a little personality. Good, but yeah, yeah, that's I give that three stars. I gave it three. What do you know? Um, now they, they this run with Kim back in the band and you know doing these tours that la- it lasted kind nine of a, years. It lasted a good while. Nine years. So uh, on June fourteenth, two thousand thirteen, the Pixies announced that Deal had left the band um, longer so, than their initial stint. Right. Right. Now, granted, they weren't That's probably true. doing as much stuff all the time. They were probably, yeah, I'm sure almost all of that, 95% was not talking with each other. Yeah. So I should also mention, you know, there are some really good uh, later period, two in particular later uh, Breeders albums that I really love. Title TK, which is kind of her comeback, but especially uh, the 2008 album Mountain Battles. Dude, we'll do them. Don't worry about That's it. That's an excellent album. We'll definitely do them. Um, um, as, an, as a songwriter... And an artist, she had, I think, pretty clearly surpassed um, Frank. Yeah. Or Black. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> she suffered from George Harrisonitis, except, you know... Um, Let me tell you, it's been a long time since uh, Frank Black has made a record as good as Mountain Battles. It's been a very long time since. Right. So, Kim Deal had left the band June 14th. On July 1st, the Pixies announced the addition of Kim Shattuck uh, to replace her. Uh, who also had played with the Muffs and Pandoras. That did not last very long. But anyway, that is the beginning of phase two. Dog shit album victory lap. 2013 to <laughs> yeah, the present. That's pretty harsh. That's, the, that's what you fucking get. Look, here's the thing. Let me just say, right? Dave, Dave wrote that. I, I wrote, wrote that. that face time. I'm okay with that. Uh, the thing about the, the whole situation is this. Uh, the young me, the young me who's, you know, unspoilt, by you know the venality of the modern world doesn't want the pixies to continue and have reunions i want them to exist in amber forever obviously that's not going to happen and that's a beautiful thing they get to cash in they didn't get to the first time around so i get it they get to cash in and that's a great thing well they can go they go play these shows they, they do tours they have they don't need to bring any production or any fancy they just go and play and people are just psyched to see them play they don't need like a big light show or big like staging or you know they just show up play their tunes and it's like everybody's happy so yeah, this I think it's but very, the problem it's is very lucrative for them to play those shows. Now I thought a lot about this. This is one of the more um, thought-provoking episodes of the show because they're the, they're the sort of band that their strengths are kind of subtle. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they're uh, they they why are they so great at their peak and then why are they not? Why does it fail later when they when they try to kind of recapture the glory? I think the their intentions are pretty good. They're trying to, make, you know, they're trying to be a band. They're trying to be what they are, make, make a record. Um, you know, you can't be in your twenties forever. You know, um, I think there's kind of a good spirit behind these recordings. They just don't really, they're missing that thing. You know, what's funny is notwithstanding Kim Deal's presence, who's obviously, you know, there is none. Um, they're all the components are in place. Just as they were back in the beginning, right? But they're not, and they're utilized in the same way. But the magic and the energy is gone. Um, There's a few things going on here. I think um, first of all, they they are in, in sort of a space where they feel like a very safe kind of band mm-hmm. in this period. They're sort of like dad rock. In 2013, EP one comes out. In 2014, EP two, and then EP three comes out. 
and then all of it is packaged together as an abomination called Indie Cindy. Now, again, I don't want to be naysaying their success or anything like that. There are releases, you know, further on from there, but initially we're just going to be talking from that. It's a collection of 12 songs. It has all the pieces in place that you would expect from the Pixies, but in essence, it's like the pod people from the Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It looks like your husband, but it's not your husband. Well, again, like I was saying, it kind of has that dad rock sort of thing to it. It sort of, it feels very safe. There's mm-hmm. some there there's some unfortunate turd polishing going on with this, where it's yeah. very pro toolsed. It feels very on the grid. The sounds are not really very adventurous. The the songs are kind of like have kind of weirdly like kind of adult contemporary. Like it's sometimes they sound like they could be on like hot AC radio or something. Like the, some some of the songs that have hooks, the hooks are very kind of like sort of catchy but really soft. <laughs> you know, like kind of uh, it's it's sort of too pleasant in a way a lot of the times. Not, not that you'd know any difference, but uh, after EP one, Kim Shattuck had. Um, had uh, been given her her marching papers. And then that next month, it was announced that Paz Lechanton, Lenchanton? Paz. Paz Lenchanton. Paz is kind of an acquaintance. I have like a million mutual friends with Paz. I can't say that I've ever had like a meaningful conversation with her. I've, you know, bumped into her many times. She's been around the scene in LA a long time. Definitely paid her dues, played in a million different bands. She's a really good musician. And she can do Kim's voice pretty good. She can ape. Yeah, she can, it's you know, like watching Rich Little. It's a thing of astounding. Well, you know beauty. what it's more like? It's huh. more kind of like when you go see Kiss. And they got a guy like wearing the Ace Fraley makeup. Right. It's not Ace Fraley, but right. You but know, it'll whatever do in a good pinch. enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like that. You know what? I mean, all you need to know about these releases is the song "Greens and Blues." I don't know if you know about this, but Black Francis wrote it with the intention of creating seriously, quote unquote, a better gigantic. Yes. Yeah, okay. This is one of, one of and those and ones then that... he goes on to describe something that would musically, emotionally, and psychologically sit in the same place that Gigantic has sat. I yeah, mean, this that's is one of the ones where wrong. it's like it has kind of a strummy acoustic guitar and it sounds very dad rock, like Counting Crows yeah, yeah. or something. It sounds like it could be on Hot AC radio. And then Blue Eyed Hex, that to me, that sounds like free. I mean, look, no slight on free. They're, they have some great stuff, but I'm not looking for cowbell or classic rock from my Pixies. There sometimes where they do like fake Kim, kind of like mm-hmm. you know, like uh, the song Bag Boy. Yep, that one has a very That's prominent really like fake fake Kim kind of you know. EP three, I think, is the worst of the three. So here's I kind of just internalized these as indie Cindy. And, all and right, treated well, it that I way. treated them differently. 2013 EP one, I give one star. EP two, I give one star. EP three, I give a half star. I give the whole lot a star and a half. Well, that you're much more generous than me. Um, there was, let's see, it's. I had one note of a one that wasn't too bad, which is uh, Magdalena eighteen. That mm. one was my favorite. I'm squinting here. There's no. I, I'm, squ- I'm squinting. Yeah, I don't. I, there's nothing I like off those. What about Andro Queen? You know that well, one. I like nothing. <laughs> no, I like that was the worst one. Andro, like Andro Queen is very bad. I listen to it all. I trust me. That kind of has like an auto tune, like auto tune vocal going on. I think they use that for everything. It's like, actually, no, well, they in general they use auto tune like. I can definitely detect pitch correction yeah, on this album a lot, tell. but that one they use it like in the share kind of way. Right, <laughs> they use it in like the T pain kind of way. In mm. 2016, Head Carrier comes out, so this is the first album with with pause on it, um, and this is a it's a what can I say? It's a slight improvement. 
Here's why I say that, okay? There's a couple songs that I think are not that bad, okay? Not I wouldn't be embarrassed trying to defend their collective inclusion on the playlist because I am going to push for two songs on this to be included on, on the playlist. This one sounds to me more like they are more consciously trying to be Pixies-ish. Like they yeah. were trying to put the signifiers out there that like, hey, we're the Pixies. I like Balls Back, which is fr- it's Frank screaming again. It's not bad. Uh, That's one of the ones where they're really trying to put across like, hey, the, we're the Pixies. Yeah, look, they're trying to use the tame template. It's hard to go back to the well. I know. <laughs> it's hard to go back. I know, back. but it's, it's it, look, the one that is something new is Plaster of Paris. Mm-hmm. I like that one. It's uh, it's a little bit new. They're not just trotting out all the the old college rock, Spanish bass heavy screamer signifiers, and no other of their songs feature that. So I would say commendable enough. I give the whole effort two stars. I also gave this one one and a half, and I you know it was to me not really all that different from the indie Cindy recordings. And again, it made me think about what how what I'm what criteria I'm using to value these. When they're kind of going for the thing where they're trying to sound like the Pixies and it falls short or it sounds like the Pixies, but like an adult contemporary version of it, Um, you know, there are things that sound like almost like library music kind of sounding. Mm -hmm. Um, That to me isn't really a whole lot of an improvement over the uh, Indie Cindy. Most of the songs don't really work, but it's not so much like they're referencing their own past. I try to remove myself from this. Like, I don't want to judge these records on but based on the band's own past, I want to try to judge them on their own merits. It's harder to do that when they're consciously trying to remind you of their own past. Right. When they're writing with those reminders in mind, right. then you can't divorce yourself from it. It's also the same thing that if you if you actually follow U2 this late in their career, you find yourself struggling with because when they're attempting to be adventurous and, you know, and stake new terrain, you get something like No Line on the Horizon, which is, you know, it's a very embarrassing attempt to be experimental. Like there's one tune on this record um, called All I Think About Now. You know that one? That's kind of like a very obvious rewrite of Where Is My Mind? Mm-hmm. And again, it's, it's just sort of like it's kind of cringy. Well, it's not a it's not a very obvious. You know, the whole thing behind that, right? Uh, no, I just know it sounds a lot it's, like. It the, well, the, a lot like where's my mind? Well, the lyrics were written um, by Paz right. in tribute to Kim Deal, right. ripping off her song. Right. So that's basically kind of like, at least has a meta kind of. Dude, that's thing basically to it. that's basically like you know having sex with somebody's husband, then replacing them, and then wearing all their clothes. Mm. That's probably a good intention, by the <laughs> I don't know. I guess. Um, okay, so then in 2019. We have uh, their last album to date, Beneath the Airy. Uh With this one, the only song that I think is kind of interesting is Daniel Boone in a sort of Havelina ambient, imagistic kind of way. Uh, I give this album two stars, but really I'm being generous. Now, this one I liked a little bit better. And this one, I'm, it's not to say I really liked it per se. I also gave it two stars. Um, you know, they, this one, I think they're kind of just at this point, just trying to be whoever they are at the, at this time. There's less kind of pixie signifiers on it. They did this record, um, at a studio called dreamland upstate New York, where a lot of classic records have been made. And it's a studio that's like a vibe. It's in an old abandoned church. And I think like Lanois used to work there and it's like, it's, it's very like uh, iconic studio. And apparently they were very, uh, inspired by working there and it sonically the record at least sounds like a real record 
where the previous two kind of sound like they're kind of just sort of Pro Tools generic, could have been done anywhere. This record has a little bit of a sound, has a little bit of a sonic imprint. Of the three post Kim albums, this one's the best of the three to me. Um, it's, I, I would I would say Head Carrier gets that distinction for me. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, depends on what you value. But there's none of them I'd want to put on. So that's th- also this true. one. Too st- it doesn't matter. This one, who who gives a shit? Life is honestly too short. If you've ever lost someone who's close to you or had any medical mishaps, mm-hmm. you would never choose to actually put this on and listen to it all. My note here says it's not amazing. But also, you don't have to listen to it. That's exactly correct. You could always put Doolittle on. Their last release to date is 2020's single Hear Me Out on the A-side and Mambo's Son on the B-side. Sample lyric, got this problem in my life. It's what this song is all about. Hear me out. All I'm trying to say is it's all right. It's all right. It's okay. It's all right. It's okay. Um, not really a Pixie song. Doesn't really... Not at all. Not at all. Oh, and Black Francis gets the flip, which is a standard time clock punching T-Rex cover off Electric Warrior of Mambo's Son. Uh, um, another uninspired release from the Pixies. At the risk of using the word ass as an adjective, that cover of <laughs> yes, Mambo's Son is ass. It is. I give the whole thing one star, but uh, really the single gets zero stars. I revise it to zero. I gave it one, but <clears throat> I hadn't even really contemplated zero. Well, when we zoom know. back out, guys, um, you know, I was reading a review of a Simple Minds bio because that's what I do in my spare time. And um, <clears throat> in this uh, review, the author, Graham Thompson, stated very eloquently, he doesn't he doesn't want to use their young brilliance as a stick with which to beat them. And it really rang true for me with the Pixies because I don't want to use their young brilliance to beat them with it. So as an arc... Uh, basically, they flew hot and hard for about five years and then came back and they cashed in on what should have been a profitable first go around. That's basically their career. Uh, their uh, their third best album, in my personal unhumble opinion, is Trump Lamond. Number two is Doolittle. Number one is Surfer Rosa. And then their worst album is indubitably Indie Cindy. Um, okay, so for my top three, my number three is Come On Pilgrim, even though it's an EP. I think there's more good stuff on Come On Pilgrim than there is on Trompe Le Monde. Loving it! That's number three. Number two, I have Surfer Rosa. And number one, I'm ranking Doolittle. But those first two, you could really flip a coin. You know what? I fucked amazing. up. You're right. I should have put... I don't know why I didn't put Too Come late. On Pilgrim. Too late. I feel like such an asshole. All right, go ahead. Sorry. And the weakest one, I would, you know, I think Indie Cindy's the worst one. Um, if you're, if we're counting only canonical era, I would say Bossa Nova would be the weakest. But if we're counting the, I uh, agree. If we're counting the comeback <clears throat> albums, yeah, I'd I agree. Say Indie Cindy's the weakest. Guys, thank you for taking that troll with us. Uh, that meant a lot to us. We were psyched to do this one. Um, and, um, you know, uh, make sure to, uh, you know, follow us on all the social media platforms and hit us up in our discussion group. If you go to the Discography Facebook page. Claws look, out, please. We will look, respond. <laughs> you look at under groups, you join the discussion group and um, we will we'll be in there. Us personally. 
We like not, to have rock fights. We're not so um, fancy and posh that we have like interns who are doing our Facebook discussions. Well, it's actually us. We recently quit our collective day job just so we could respond to you immediately on that discussion group. Yeah, so get in that. You know, if yeah, you want, also if you, definitely uh, subscribe to us, follow. We have a lot of stuff coming out. Uh, including Patreon content, uh, very special episodes which come out randomly on Thursdays. Um, God, we have tons of interview guests coming up. Joe, it's insane to even think about. It's just crazy. There's so much discography happening in our lives and hopefully yours. We're really looking forward to spraying all you guys down with some spray cans. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to rate the audience. Yes. Actually, why don't you guys rate us? That's another thing Please. you can do. If you want to go to your podcast platform of choice and give us a rating, um, we, we would humbly hope you give us five stars. We look forward to it. We'll see you next time on Discography. Discography.